listeners, this is 3CR 855 on the AM dial and you are listening to the DOGS program. The Australian Council for Defence of Government Schools are here every Saturday at noon on the DOT uh, to defend and promote public education. We have a website at www.adogs.info and we put up a press release or try to every week and we also read it out on 3CR. This afternoon we're going to spend quite a lot of time going to Sweden. Now we're told how wonderful the Scandinavian countries are, but as the pandemic has unfolded, we have seen that Sweden, following the United States, has been taking a very individualised and um, neoliberal approach to the pandemic and has uh, not done too well. The same is the case with their education system. Since the 1980s, like Victoria and other parts of uh, Australia, they have embraced the idea that decentralisation of public systems is better than a centralised system. Now, this is what this program is largely about. Our press release 871 Centralised administrations of public education are necessary for equality of opportunity. Now, a lot of people have been talking about equality of opportunity. Certainly we have in the last few weeks. And you're not going to get it with a decentralised system. They haven't got it in America and they certainly haven't got it since they decentralised in Sweden. And we're going to see also how we have declined in equality of opportunity in Australia since we decentralised. In the 19th century, administrators of Western democracies understood that centralised administrations protected teachers and students from local disputes and inequalities. They also transferred resources into schools more efficiently and economically and they gave career opportunities for teachers and educators. But they had to be properly resourced by a committed government through a centralised rather than a localised taxation system. And that's what we had in Australia until the 1960s and the 1980s. Now, this lesson was learnt in the 19th century because there was a failure in the 19th century, a failure of the denominational or religious system to educate all of the children. And the man who discovered this was actually quite a hero in public education. His name was William Wilkins. He was the director of New South Wales education system and he persuaded Henry Parks when they set up the New South Wales Department of Education and stopped state aid to private schools in 1880, that centralisation was the best way to go. And most teachers agreed. The private sector have always denigrated the centralised public school administrations while centralising their own administrations in the last 50 years so that they could administer public money as they see fit and lobby governments. Since the 1960s, but gaining momentum since the 1980s, those preaching decentralisation have gained the policy initiative in Australia. In Victoria, for example, the demolition of the education department started in the 1980s. I know because I was there and I watched it. And um, there were ongoing restructures, There was a replacement of committed, experienced public school administrators with those from the private system right at the top, and the public-private partnerships and school building projects gained momentum. Principals are now given a budget, power to employ teachers and ever-increasing responsibilities. The job of public school principals is becoming a vastly overloaded one. And, of course, if you decentralise, if something goes wrong, you can blame not the central people, not the people in power, not the minister, but always the teachers. So teachers have a vested interest in a strong centralised bureaucracy. But now, in New South Wales, the same decentralisation mantra is being put into practice. 
and it's being opposed by the New South Wales Teachers Federation and others. The Save Our Schools group point to the following Swedish experience as a failed experiment in decentralisation and they compare it to Finland. This article that we're going to read to you this afternoon by Per Kornhull, who is a Swedish author who worked as a high school lecturer and a teaching advisor at the Swedish National Agency for Education and as a school strategist, was originally published on Diane Ravitch's blog in America. And we have slightly edited it, and it has also been reproduced by the Save Our Schools on their website. But I will now uh, have a little bit of a break, and we'll come back to Oliver and Dale, who will read this article for you. It's very insightful. Please stay with us, because the Swedish experiment is very similar to the Australian experiment, and it is a failed experiment. What a show of strength we've got here today. Local issues. So I'm here at the school, kids strike for climate action. Live coverage. Join the, the spirit of this gathering here today at IMAP. Your voices. So give us a bit of a lowdown about what's happening. There's about 200, 250 people here at the moment. Community struggles. We're now in front of the uh, Tundaminawaya Mawbohina Monument. I'd like to thank Community Radio 3CR, who for the last decade has been broadcasting here. Feed Radical Radio, your membership is vital. A few hundred people about to pass us right now. Lots of young people standing up for their future. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 Well, listeners, um, before the break, we were talking from our press release, 871, at our website at www.adogs.info, about a failed decentralised experiment. It is failing here in Australia, and it has failed and is failing in Sweden. We also have gross inequalities in America, which is highly decentralised system. And I'm going to pass you over now to Oliver, who will... Uh, read from the Sweden, a failure in market-based education by uh, Per Kornhau. Over to you. Thank you, Jenny. Sweden is often seen as part of a homogenous Nordic sphere. Small, cold countries with midnight sun, fair-skinned populations, small social democratic idols with equal free healthcare, good schools and a high standard of living. The reality is never as simple as our prejudices. And one of the things that now characterizes Sweden is that we, in important areas of society, have left the common Nordic tradition of a cohesive school. The Swedish school was built on a liberal and social democratic basis, starting with an elementary school reform in 1878, and then with careful and scientific work to design a school for all. The unit school that would serve the entire population was launched in the 1960s, and all pieces were in place in the late 1970s. It was a building where thorough investigations, researchers and politicians were used and collaborated. One of the countries that looked at Sweden and tried to emulate the system that was built was Finland. But because Finland, unlike Sweden, had a poor economy after World War II, it took them a little longer to build a similar system. We will return to them. When a Swedish school minister, Goran Persson, in a reform proposal in 1990, wanted to summarise the Swedish school situation. He wrote that it was a world leader in knowledge and, above all, in equivalence. He brags that in Sweden, it does not matter which school you go to, the quality of education was the same all over the country, in all schools, and he believed that it was the strong central control of the school that had this effect. But the strange thing about this text is that part of a reform proposal that begins the great Swedish school experiment This is the text where this successful Swedish equivalent school begins to be dismantled. The first step was that the state backed away and handed over responsibility for the teachers' and principals' appointments and salaries to the country's 290 municipalities. At the same time, a change was made in the school's control system. New public management had begun to spread around the world and the Swedish school's rigid rule management 
was to be replaced by goal management and the teachers will go from a well-paid collective with predictable salary development to individualized salaries. Governance and collective was to be replaced by competition and individuality. It did not stop at teachers' salaries. In 1992, due to the municipalization, the school was in somewhat of a limbo state. The decentralization was carried out despite strong protests from teachers, and the state authority that had so far managed the school system was dismantled. At that time, Sweden got a prime minister, Karl Bildt, with strong connections to the United States. Among other things, he had been educated in the United States on an American scholarship. He collaborated early in his career with U.S. authorities so that they had access to otherwise secret information about talks before a government was formed in Sweden, for example. He now led a government with a clear ambition for a system change and a revolutionary neoliberal agenda, an agenda that stipulated that citizens should become customers in a welfare market system. The new government was taking advantage of the vacuum in the school area and quickly implemented a private school reform that was taken directly from Rose and Milton Friedman's book, Freedom to Choose. It was a reform that stood in stark contrast to previous reforms in the school area in Sweden. It was not preceded by any investigation and does not contain any calculations of consequences. It was a system preceded by any investigations. It was not preceded by any investigation and does not contain any calculations of consequences. It was a system change they wanted and they did not want to waste time on details and investigations. School systems are large and slow systems. The consequences of the changes in the regulation first began to become visible only on a small scale and have grown since to become very powerful in the last decades. In addition to a small increase in the last two times of the PISA survey, Sweden, for example, between 2000 and 2012 was the country that fell the most of all countries in results. This created a PISA shock in Sweden, which led mostly to the teaching staff being blamed for this. But really, it was obvious in the OECD analysis what had happened, namely that what had been the Swedish school's great pride, equality, had begun to deteriorate. What drove the fall in Swedish results in PISA was that low-achieving students had started to perform much worse. It became clear that, that the school, that was the basic values of both the French Revolution, Protestantism, and social democracy on the equal value of all human beings, no longer existed. The differences between schools have increased dramatically. This at the same time as the status of the teaching profession declined and an increasingly serious shortage of teachers was established. Back to Eugene. Yes, uh, thank you very much, Oliver. We'll have a bit of a break. But um, the Swedish story, does it sound familiar? Does it sound familiar to what happened here in Australia, particularly in Victoria, uh, since the 1980s and the neoliberal mantra? of choice and let's uh, make sure that parents can have the last say. Forget the teachers, we can always blame them if things go wrong. Okay, we'll have a bit of a break and they will come back with a bit more of this very interesting story. You can see that this country is covered in the blood of Aboriginal people, length and breadth of it. Australia is a part of an undeclared war and a secret invasion. And it began 250 years ago this year. Now we have a country that's built on lies, deceit, fraud, propaganda and race hatred indoctrination. Now it's been 250 years of us being oppressed in our own land. Brutally. We might be oppressed but we understand what freedom is. And we fight for it every day and we've resisted this occupation since day one. And I predict colonialism... Capitalism, imperialism is going to get knocked out cold by about mid this year. 3CR, your station in struggle and solidarity. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. Well, here we are back on 3CR with the Dogs Program, and we have been discussing what happened in Sweden and drawing parallels with what has happened in Australia. But Dale will continue the story for us. 
Thank you, Jean. Yes, uh, it continues. An interesting thing about the Swedish market experiment is that we have a control group. Finland, which was mentioned earlier, more or less copied the Swedish system, but did not follow Sweden into the neoliberal agenda. In recent decades, Finland has also dazzled the world with its results in PISA and other surveys, both in terms of results and, not least, in terms of equivalence. It really doesn't matter which school you go to in Finland. In all schools, you are met by a qualitative teaching, by qualitative teaching delivered by a skilled and motivated teaching staff. So we have a control group. We know that the Swedish reforms led to an overall worse system. Yet so far, there are no real attempts to turn back the clock in Sweden. What were the decisions that were made in the early 1990s and what were their consequences? As already mentioned, I've already mentioned the municipalisation, the abolition of regulations in favour of goal management and the individualisation of the teaching stuff. What the neoliberal government led by Carl, Carl Bildt added to this was that it opened up state funding of schools for private schools, also mm -hmm. such that were run for profit. In the case of establishment of private schools, the responsibility was moved away from the municipalities so that whoever wanted to start a school could do whatever they wanted could do that wherever they wanted without local authorities being able to say anything about it. It was the principles of the free market that should apply. The private schools get paid as much per pupil as the pupils of the municipal schools in that municipality. As much per pupil as the pupils of the municipal school in that municipality receive on average. Instead of placing students in the nearest school, school choice was also introduced. So what has happened to the national school system in Sweden is that from being a societal commitment to ensuring that every child has a good school in their vicinity, it became a school market. Parents buy an education through their school choice and the school vouchers that follow the student. This voucher is the only funding a school in a typical municipality in Sweden has as income. You do not balance at all according to class size, fixed costs or any such variable. The only mechanism that remains to ensure that the school's compensatory mission is not too compromised is a writing in the National Education Act that the municipalities should wait school fees so that children with tougher conditions have a higher one. But there is no national control over what such a distribution should look like. It may be important to say this again. Sweden thus went from a nationally equivalent and high-performing school system to a mediocre and unequal school market. A market where it is important for everyone, public as well as private, to relate to the fact that parents and students are customers. This has, for example, led to extensive grade inflation. Since grades become something you can compete with, there is pressure on teachers to set high grades. This had, for example, the consequences that during the period in which the fall in knowledge results was shown by the OECD in PISA surveys, the average grade rose in Sweden. Well, thank you very much, Dale. Uh, we'll have a bit of a break and Oliver will come back with the final episode. But more and more, this Swedish experiment, market experiment, parental choice experiment, sounds very like the Australian experience. And it leads and has led to gross inequalities and a failure of the uh, system to keep up with the International Joneses. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. 
everyone, you're listening to 3CR, uh, 855 on the AM dial, and this is the Dogs Program. And we are talking about the experiment in Sweden of decentralisation and its parallels in Australia, particularly in Victoria. Uh, and here is the final part of this episode uh, from Oliver. Thank you, Jean. Two other important consequences of the market are the shortage of teachers and a galloping segregation. In a typical Swedish city today, children from well-educated parents gather for profit private schools, while working-class children and immigrants attend the schools of the public school system. In fact, this division is also what gives rise to the profits of the large private school groups. Tuition fees have become a lucrative asset, take in many students, hire a few cheap teachers, and you have money ticking into your school account. But the equation is based on the fact that you attract children to your school who are relatively easy to teach, i.e. children of highly educated people. These children do not need as many resources, which enable you to make a profit in schools. And we're talking about a lot of money. We are talking about tens of millions of dollars per school group in pure profit per year. The incentive to make money in schools is so strong that it is expected that for the capital Stockholm, the majority of students will soon go to such uh, group schools rather than to public ones. Then the school system in Stockholm will no longer be public, but be mainly privately owned. In addition to a shortage of teachers, 30% of those who teach Swedish K1 to 9, are now not trained teachers, reduced knowledge results, inequality and segregation. The market model has also led to another consequence that strikes at the, at the heart of Swedish public culture and self-image. Sweden has traditionally had very little corruption at the state level. It is a country that is usually among the least corrupt when comparing different countries. One of the reasons, and something that Swedes are usually very proud of, is what is called the principle of openness. That is, everything that is paid for by tax money must be fully transparent. Both as a journalist and as a citizen, you must be able to request the documents you want to see from a municipal or state authority at any time. It should be possible to hold the administration account accountable quite simply. But this completely disappeared from the school sector a few months ago. The Swedish Statistical Authority suddenly realized that Swedish school statistics should be regarded as trade secrets and thus could not be disclosed or made available. This means that grades and other results from Swedish schools, the institution central to democracy, are now secret. This has upset many, but we do not yet see that this will lead to any major change in the system. Sweden is right now trading transparency for the right to make money on schools. Back to you, Jean. Well, there you are. Well, we know all about this one, too, after lots of Auditor General's reports on the Catholic education system in Australia. Sweden, of course, has uh, mainly a Lutheran system. Uh, that is mainly a Lutheran uh, country. I'm not sure whether it's a state church, but I wouldn't be surprised. It is in Denmark. Well, um, thank you very much, Dale and uh, Oliver, for this very interesting story. It sounds very like what we have experienced in Australia, uh, particularly the corruption. Uh, and after all, because our state systems have um, contracted out uh, certain uh, very basic um, IT requirements and others, we have had um, criminal activity in the Victorian Education Department too. I think that there has been... Um, a case recently, but we won't go into that at the moment. So um, as soon as you start to um, privatise public facilities, what should be public facilities, what, what is mainly paid for with tax, taxpayer fundings, you're right, you get corruption. So that's enough for Sweden at the moment. We'll have a bit of a break and we'll come back with some good news stories, shall we?
welcome back, dear listeners, to the DOGS program uh, Saturday. Uh, this is the uh, 18th, 19th of, of uh, December, and the year is going very quickly. We've been talking about Sweden and Australia, and the news is not good when you're dealing with neoliberal experiments and lack of inequality in our education systems. And uh, it seems that common sense is not very strong in the human uh, stratosphere at the moment, in Australia anyway. But um, the AEU, the Australian Education Union, has a very interesting media release on the 9th of December entitled Building Inspiration. And they talk about a a, a rising seven-storey Sportitude Valley State Secondary College uh, and how exciting this is for the people in Brisbane. They also talk about lofty expectations of these buildings. And, of course, we have these now being built for our state school children here in Melbourne. There is a very interesting one going up at the Docklands. And the Andrews government, and the governments all around Australia, of course, have got to think about where they are going to put the children in school. Because in spite of the uh, neoliberal experiment, we've had a pandemic and uh, not every parent can uh, afford the wonderful fees that are now being raked in by the private schools, although they are aware of this too. We've been talking about their business plans and frozen fees for 2021. But that does not mean that a lot of public school children are going to be turning up on the doorstep in a few more weeks. But there is also a very interesting uh, college uh, extension being built out in in Melbourne, and I'd like uh, Dale to tell us a bit of good news about this. The students who started at Essendon Keelor College's Nidri campus in Melbourne last year will never know how different their learning experience could have been. Over to you, Dale. Thank you, Jean. Yes, uh, they'll never know how different their learning experience could have been. But for the teachers who work there, every day is better. Principal David Adamson says the new $12 million project has absolutely improved teaching and learning. It's made a big difference because it's purpose-built, he says. Adamson and his team work closely with Haskell Architects to design a building specifically for teaching the middle years curriculum. It's got flexible spaces that we can open up for larger groups of students or we can close them off for use as normal classrooms. It was designed to cater for a range of teaching and learning techniques, says Adamson. The focus on STEM, S-T-E-M, is also evident with various technology tricks and resources to keep the building relevant. We wanted to design a building that would be there in another 30 years and would be usable for new teaching practices in the next 10 to 20 years, Adamson says. But it wasn't an easy path to last year's opening ceremony. Adamson spent seven years on media campaigns and lobbying governments to get the funds to replace the old campus, a light timber construction built in the 1950s. We couldn't use some of the rooms because the ceilings were falling in, he says. We were worried the glass was going to fall out of windows because the window frames were rotten and there were drainage issues, heating and cooling issues and rising damp. It was well past its use-by date, he says. When the funds were eventually allocated, they weren't enough to cover the cost and the school was forced to dip into its savings to make up the difference. The extra cash was needed to complete construction of a canteen and provides the necessary audio-visual and lighting equipment for a new theatre. That was money we'd save over seven or eight years to cover the expected shortfall on future building works, says Adamson. The school is now turning its sights on its two other campuses. One is served by a 110-year-old heritage building in reasonably good condition, but the other, a 50-year-old building, 
won't be fit for purpose within five to ten years because of expected enrolment increases, he says. We're going to need a new building there and there ought to be long-term planning to allocate funds to make sure buildings are kept up to a certain standard. If they are not at that standard, then they should be replaced automatically. It shouldn't get to the point that a building is so bad that it's almost uninhabitable before it gets replaced, he says. On his wish list is also adequate funding to complete entire jobs. So if you're going to build a theatre, you build a theatre with all the bits and pieces that go with it. Adamson would also improve his school's grounds if he could. They're in very poor condition because we don't have enough money to put in sprinkler systems to water the ovals or replace concrete paths broken up by tree roots. It's the basic things. We're not asking for underground car parks or swimming pools. We're asking for the things you need to run a school properly, he said. And that's it for the Victorian section of that report. Yes, well, um, the, the state systems throughout Australia need at least $17 billion in, sorry, $19 billion if they're to come up to anything like the resource standard. Uh, so, uh, things are really quite, uh, quite, quite at the tipping point in Australia. And it's going to be very interesting to find out what happens in the next three or four years. So we'll have a bit of a break and then we'll come back with something else that's a, a very interesting article. See you later. Looking for an easy way to keep up with your annual 3CR subscription? You can now set up an annual debit from your bank account or credit card and once a year your payment will be automatically deducted. You can cancel at any time and you'll get a reminder each year before payment. Be a constant supporter of Melbourne's precious independent community radio station and set up a recurring payment today. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Welcome back to the Dogs Program. Next, uh, I'm going to read an article by Arthur Cammons and titled Education, Hopes and Dreams. I have hopes and dreams for my grandchildren's education. I have hopes that the next Secretary of Education will help make them possible. I'm not counting on it. Like other educators, I've been intensely focused on Joe Biden's selection of the next Secretary of Education. The rest of the country may not be, but not for lack of concern about the needs of America's children, and not for a dearth of thwarted yearnings. However, leadership selection is a trailing indicator of our collective success in coming together to organise and to fight for our hope. Persistent inequity and underfunding, especially after decades of emphasis on test-based accountability and privatisation, largely unopposed increases in racial and socioeconomic segregation, and four years of leadership by an active opponent of public education, brings us to a moment of choice for K-12 public education in the United States. Change or give up on the needs of most of America's children. I usually write what I hope are persuasive essays about education policy and other social justice issues. However, the divisiveness of the last election demonstrates that we can't argue or campaign our way to the lasting fundamental change through presidential elections. The change we need begins with building relationships through shared, multiracial conversation and struggle. Today, I offer my hopes for my two grandchildren and the rest of the children with whom they will grow up and live as adults. Maybe these can be conversation starters with others about their own hopes. That's what I think we need to do so that we can work together to push our hopes for America's children in the coming years, no matter who serves as America's chief education officer. I hope they will go to schools where they and their classmates are cared for, 
known, valued and respected. I hope they will experience and learn empathy and respect and that their circle extends across our great diversity to encompass all people. We all remember how we were treated. How we treat one another is what matters most for how we live together. I hope they will learn the thinking abilities, concepts, practices, skills and dispositions required for active participation in a diverse, equitable, democratic society for all students. I hope they will develop a sense of responsibility and the competence to struggle with others for that way of living together. I hope they will learn to make decisions based on evidence, to admit when they are unsure and change what they think when evidence suggests they are wrong. Our collective ability to decipher the truth and assume responsibility for one another will determine whether or not we fall further into a destructive out-for-yourselfism pandemic and divisiveness. If we articulate and coalesce around needs and hopes, the rest will fall into place. That will guide who is chosen for leadership positions from schools to school districts, from state to federal education departments. It will frame what we should stop and start doing to ensure a successful, equitable education for all students. And Arthur Cammins wrote that, and he's a lifelong educator who writes about education and social, just, social justice. And we'll have a quick break, and then we'll be right back. You're listening to The Dogs on 3CR. Fitzroy Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching the new COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws? or stopped and questioned by police for being outside. Call 0434 136 501. Weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434 136 501. Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter. Welcome back to the DOGS program. You're listening to the Defence of Government Schools on 3CR 855 on your AM dial. Now I'm going to play a little bit more audio from the Australian Education Union web seminar that occurred on the 25th of November. Now, the first two speakers, uh, we had Karenna Haythorpe of the AU uh, speaking to... Michelle O'Neill and Emma Dawson. But now we're going to go to her talk with Adam Roris, who's a senior education and political economist. Adam, uh, Emma has talked about um, several of the things that uh, uh, that the coalition has focused on and the lack of investment in terms of um, uh, the federal budget. But uh, uh, I know you've been looking at this issue from a research um, perspective. And so what does your research tell us about uh, investing in recurrent and capital funding in particular uh, for public schools and how this could actually stimulate the economy? Thanks, Karina, and thanks, everyone. Calling from uh, Gadigal country, Eora Nation in Sydney up here, so greetings and thanks for having me this, this evening. It's, um, look, I was planning on starting somewhere else and that was basically to, uh, to dance on, really to dance on the grave of, of monetarism because it, it died. I mean, I mean, it, it's, it's the application of monetarism by conservative governments around the world has really run right across so many societies and, the interesting thing is to, to why it died is, is that it basically they've got nowhere to go with it. If you look at the cash rate in Australia, there, there is just, they can't, they're at zero, they're at close to zero. They can't go anywhere else with it. In other words, when we say monetarism, the idea that, uh, you can affect the, 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 the most important and to some of them, to these ideologues, the only real lever on the economy was, was, um, monetary policy. And by that, they generally meant interest rates, uh, has really 
been taken from them because they've got nowhere to go with it anymore unless they get into the into that strange and bizarre territory of, of negative rates. And so what's, what, what we see is, uh, is a reserve bank that's largely uh, stranded uh, on its old ideal, you know, the land of its, that it stood on uh, for so long, which was really the land of uh, tackling inflation at the great expense of unemployment, which was actually in its charter. And at the time of the founding of the Reserve Bank, really, the key priority, I mean, you know, people want a job at the end of the day. They need to put food on the table for themselves and their families and the people they care for. That had really slipped to, at best, a distant second for the Reserve Bank. Uh, and governments, of course, had a had a role to play that. They didn't travel that distance towards monetarism on their own. They went there as part of, a, a you know, an international agenda uh, and, in, in a way, the way of governments um, engaging with the economy, that really is no longer open to them. It's just not an option. It's gone. So they have they have had by force of um, of of the collapse of their own policy prescriptions now having to go to some form of fiscal policy, and that's why all the talk is how do we spend. And how much do we spend? Gone is the should we, gone is the can we afford it, gone is the deficit. Uh, all that's gone. It's now on everyone's agenda from the most conservative through to, uh, the progressive. Uh, what do we spend on? How do we do it? And what do we get for it? Um, and I think that's a really significant moment because that, you know, we need to understand that that terrain's changed to be able, I think, to get the best possible deal uh, for this sector, uh, for the children that this sector is there to serve, and for the workers that are in that sector that address the needs of, of those children. Um, and it, but it's a historic opening. I think we've got a historic opening here. And what struck me uh, when I was looking at, at the discussions that were going on with the, you know, with the usual advisors to government, the agencies such as Deloitte, for example, uh, that provide advice, we started to we started to hear more about uh, it was important to invest in capital uh, spending for uh, immediate projects, and they were they were, they've been arguing Deloitte this year argued very strongly that government should be moving away from the large infrastructure projects, i.e. the roads and you know the multi-billion-dollar road type approach and go towards uh, addressing the needs of what they've called existing assets. And schools are a, a very good example of that. Hospitals are another. Um, and the reason that's so important from an economic point of view is because those projects can start very quickly. Uh, and those projects are distributed right across the country. When you consider our schools, and of course our public schools, they you will find them uh, in the smallest town, in the, in the outback, uh, in, in the bigger cities, of course. Uh, and they are, they are where people live, uh, and they are there whether you're rich or poor. Uh, and our public schools, of course, are, uh, are, uh, predominantly have a greater share of, of representation amongst the middle class and poorer communities because they're the ones that generally can't afford private schools. And so these facilities are an excellent place for government to invest at, a, at any time, at any time. But in particular, at a time of um, economic uh, crisis, because it gets them, it gets the money out, it moves it fast, um, and that has uh, really important effects in terms of stimulus. And I think the other thing that the sector has is that it can deliver money, not just, and it can deliver money to different types of jobs. I mean, I think that's the most important thing. Traditionally, uh, we would expect to see, you know, at a time of crisis where you've had a, a massive disruption to schooling, be it because of war or, or something like we're experiencing here now, uh, with a, with a, a you know, a pandemic. Uh, and I, I've, I've operated in both situations in, in countries around the world. Where you, where you get a big disruption to, to a school age population, it's very important to, to get in quickly, uh, and get those kids back into a, a more normal education process, a more normal schooling process. And the kids that are most, uh, negatively impact, uh, negatively, negatively impacted by these disruptions are those kids that have got, uh, environments at home that are, 
less conducive and less supported, less supportive of their, their educational, uh, learning, uh, and their social development. And so it's absolutely important that you get, uh, teachers, uh, in front of those kids to actually, and in sufficient numbers, uh, that they are able to, to engage with these children in lower um, student-teacher ratios than you would have a norm, normally in a class of, say, 25 to 1. You know, you're probably looking at 10 to 1 or less than that uh, with, with children that have very uh, specific needs and, and are at risk. I mean, these are children, let's not forget, we're talking about children that if we don't actually engage with them as a society in an intense way to support their learning, they are at risk of not completing school, they, and then we know from statistics, we know very well, once they uh, drop out, once they don't meet basic literacy and numeracy learning benchmarks, their ability to engage with work, their ability to engage in society uh, in productive, positive ways for them and for their community are diminished. Uh, and the price of that uh, diminishing uh, effect is born not just by those children and their future families, although they are primarily the ones who will bear that cost, but it's also born by the rest of our society. It's born by the rest of their community. They will then have higher social welfare costs, will have all the other costs that are associated with um, uh, a failure of those children to be properly engaged by, by the education system. So that's the first thing, and it's, and it's very important that we get uh, that immediate resource uh, capacity into those schools, but there is also um, the other. But there is the also the, the, in terms of fiscal impact. It's very important that we engage with those schools because we know. And I don't want to prefigure too much a report which I'm doing for you guys, Karina, as you well know, on capital. Uh, it's not completed yet. It's getting very close, but it's. But anyway, but very broadly, I think the picture. All the teachers know it. I think most of us know it now uh, very well, and, and that is that. Uh, public schools, when you do the numbers uh, on a per-student basis, which is really the, the only real way that you can compare, you know, how much money is going to a public school versus a private school, when we start to look at the money being spent on buildings, on facilities, on equipment in public schools uh, compared to private schools, it's a horrendous gap. Um, it's an absolute horrendous gap. And not surprisingly, that has two sort of key effects. The first one is that it impacts learning of children. Uh, the, and, and the second one is it, beca- it sends a message. It sends a message to families out there that um, if you really, if you really want to care for your kids, if you're serious about getting the best education for your kids, send them to a private school. That's the message that's sent out there. When you as a parent go to a school and you see one that's brand spanking you or, or at least has had a uh, a good lick of paint on it, and it's got some great facilities, and the one down the road has neither, uh, that's the message you're getting. And, and we have to acknowledge that. And, and public schools are, are, are dealing with that um, with that weakness uh, in funding, uh, both in terms of the material effect it actually has in the classroom, but also the perceptions it has on parents uh, and in the, the choices they make as to where they send their kids. And it feeds into the segregation of schooling that I've written about before, uh, and that is that, um, you know, in, in the name of choice, in, in the name of a parent's right to choose, we're actually uh, creating this, this segregated system, which is which is tiered uh, in many ways, but including and very importantly in terms of resourcing that, that really uh, drives... Um, Advantage and disadvantage, uh, based on, you know, the, the sector of ownership, who owns the school. And, and that's what we're dealing with. Uh, very quickly, um, I just want to say that the following in terms of investing in public schools, uh, as well as being very good, uh, in, in terms of stimulating economic growth and the building education revolution that was, um, uh, funded, uh, devised and funded by uh, the Rudd Gillard governments um, had many weaknesses, but it was actually very effective in delivering stimulus. That that's pretty clear. Um, it, it certainly had weaknesses in terms of me, uh, in terms of delivering the actual needs to schools, and I think those have been well canvassed. Uh, they in many not not everywhere, but in some states, and in particular New South Wales, there was a weakness in actually engaging 
teachers, there was a weakness in engaging principals, there was a weakness in engaging parents to, to say what are the real needs here and how do we address them. And I think that lesson's been learned. Um, but what we saw and, and the review of that um, uh, of the, the Building Education Revolution, the independent review that was conducted, was very clear in saying that um, uh, those investments can be very good at meeting the needs of, of schools, and that's what we need to do. And my research has shown that investing in schools can deliver really important long-term economic benefits. Um, improving the, the recurrent expenditure, what we took, you know, the, the Gonski standard, which is short for the Gonski standard, actually implementing that for public schools as opposed to talking about it, but actually implementing it and backing that up with the right capital investment. Uh, my research has shown that in, in Australia, we would expect to see in the order of uh, uh, over a 90-year period, because that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about investing in schools that will meet the needs of when you graduate a child after 12 years, that adult by that point, because they're 18, they will be in that workforce for approximately 50 years. Now, when you start adding increments of uh, improved efficiency, improved productivity for, that, for those people as workers, just the benefits you get in terms of their productivity amount to approximately, in my calculations, about $25 billion a year, if that's done properly. That is done effectively. And if we, if we could achieve, if we could invest in, ter- in terms of Gonski and in terms of capital, and if we could um, have, uh, uh, eliminate, eliminate the uh, learning gap, uh, the, eliminate the number of students that are below minimum learning requirements just in mathematics, and if we could have more than 95% completing year 12 or a VET pathway, uh, we would expect to, over 90 years, uh, we would expect to average about $25 billion a year in increased GDP. Uh, so the, the, the figures are enormous. They're well known. They're, these are, they're not really disputed. You, you, you might get a 10, 15% dispute on what the actual value is. But no one really disputes that the gains are potentially massive. It's just about finding the money. And I can only endorse very finely what uh, Emma said before, and I think we should move on from the debate about debt because that that is the big thing that economists now have to bury. Monetarism's dead. We've just got to now get over this problem that uh, debt is this albatross that's hanging around our necks. It's not. It's it's it's. Uh, we've got other bigger problems than debt right now, and, and it's about time we got onto that. Thanks very much, Adam. And of course, your recent research on recurrent funding has shown that the uh, uh, the coalition uh, uh, government's uh, shortfalls in terms of the schooling resource standard between now and 2023 is in the order of about $19 billion, which is absolutely disgraceful. I'm afraid that's all we've got time for today. You've been listening to the DOGS program on 3CR, the Australian Council for the Defence of Government Schools. If you'd like to find out more about us, you can by going to www.adogs.info. But until next week, it's bye for now. I dreamed I saw Joe here last night, alive as you and me. Says I, but Joe, here ten years dead, I never died, says he. Standing by my bed, they framed you on a murder charge, says Joe, but I'm dead, says Joe, but I'm dead. The copper bosses killed you, Joe, they shot you, Joe, says I. Takes more than guns to kill a man, says Joe, I didn't die, says Joe, I didn't die. And standing there as big as life, and smiling with his eyes, says Joe, 
what they can never kill went on to organize, went on to organize. From San Diego up to Maine, in every mine and mill, where workers strike and organize, it's there you find your hill. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.